0: Thanks for listening to our sermons from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources or service information, visit us online at sfchurch.com. Good morning, church family. It's great to see you today. I hope you're doing well. I hope you had a good week. I don't know what your week was like. I know with the amount of people that are in this room, there's lots of stories and things that are happening. And so, I just want to pause and even acknowledge what we're doing as we open up the scriptures. We're asking for something supernatural to happen. Because each one of you wants God to speak into your life, but each one's got different things happening. And so God's having conversations with all kinds of people around the world, online and in this room um, as we're opening up the the truth. But isn't it amazing that God's word is living and active? And he can take stories from like 2,000 years ago, 4,000 years ago, speak right into your marriage, right into your work situation, right into what's going on with your relationships. And uh, it's different for somebody on this side of the room than that side. And so let's go to him in prayer. And ask him to speak to us, and then we're going to open up the scriptures in John chapter 10 today as we keep going in this I Am series. Let me pray. Father, thank you um, for meeting with us. Uh, you say so many things about yourself, and we just say them back to you even in prayer right now that, that you are um, actively involved. You are present, ever-present. Will you be present in this room? And uh, will you speak into uh, a business owner's life and has decisions about employees to make? And will you speak into a marriage that's struggling? Will you speak to people who are dealing with illness and sickness, who've just experienced loss, who've just experienced birth? God, that's all over the spectrum. And will you speak to us about who your son Jesus is and change us? In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Have you ever experienced mistaken identity? Uh, where somebody thought you were somebody other than who you are. Uh, Maybe you got a doppelganger. I'm sure some of you looking out here are guys, people thought you were Brad Pitt before or uh, Bradley Cooper or ladies, some supermodels with names from Europe that I've never even heard of or could pronounce. And uh, maybe you've done those BuzzFeed quizzes that tells you who your celebrity look-alike is or or maybe you've gotten uh, something in the mail for someone else. I remember when I first started doing public ministry, I got some hate mail. Uh, people were mad at me uh, that I would be a pastor after my background. Uh, found out they actually thought that I was a murderer who's on death row in Arizona. Uh, if you Google my name, you will find another Scott Lear, spelled exactly the same. Uh, quite a bit older than me, though, so it's easy for me to separate uh, from that person other than just saying, no, 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 I promise I didn't do it, like every criminal uh, does. But at first, when I got the letter, I'm like, how could you have done those things and now do this job? I'm like, well, I do have a background, and I started reading through I'm like, hey, I didn't murder all those people. Like, what are you talking about? And realized it was a mistaken identity. And I was doing some research this week. There's quite a few cases of this. It happens pretty regularly, sometimes because of looks, sometimes because of names. I read about a guy, if you want to look some of these up, named Jeremy Lee Bass. And 2007 was a rough year for him started off in 2007 in January uh, that he was in trouble for not showing up in traffic court. Problem was he didn't have a traffic violation, but his brother used his name when he got pulled over. (laughs) Thanks, bro. Appreciate that. Uh, Wouldn't have been that big of a deal if the other things that happened in 2007 hadn't happened. Uh, In August, he got a call that his son had died in an ATV accident. At the same time, his wife got a call that he died. They both have the same name, Jeremy Lee Bass. The problem was there was a guy in their town who had died named Jeremy Charles Bass, and the hospital mixed up the records. Uh, Jeremy Lee Bass had been in the hospital earlier that year for something totally unrelated, and so then when the obituary came out, they typed up Jeremy Lee Bass, and then started getting notifications of this, eventually got a letter from the hospital saying their condolences and all that, but then also sending him a bill for $5,000 for the treatment he received right before his death. I thought, I would love to get that bill. Not because I want the $5,000 bill, because I'd want to be able to take it into the billing department of the hospital and say, oh, you sent me a bill for dying? And just smile and wait until it clicks. I'm standing right here. There's a problem that we have in this situation. He had to go through a bunch of red tape to get that bill uh, removed and prove that he was alive. I don't know how hard it is to prove you're alive, but apparently it was hard from the article that I read. There are other people who have been arrested because of mistaken identity. Uh, One mom that I read about that that had happened, and it was uh, because they were looking for a Christine Forehorn instead of a Christina Forehorn, so that happens periodically. Uh, There was a famous case that some of you might remember from 2006. Some Taylor students were in a a terrible car accident. There was a a van that was driving with a bunch of college students in it, and it was hit by a semi-truck. Um, Five students died at the scene. Um, Four were taken to critical care. Uh, There were two girls that looked very similar to one another. I believe we have a picture here, Whitney Serac and Laura Van Ryn. And the parents of Whitney Serac were called uh, right as the accident happened and were told that their daughter had died in that accident. They had a funeral for her. A thousand students from Taylor showed up at her funeral. At the same time, they thought that Laura Van Ryn was recovering in the hospital um, not far from there. And it actually, because of the bandages and things, it was actually Whitney. And they had buried the wrong girl, uh, or at least with the wrong identity other than what they thought. And when Laura Van Ryn woke up and they asked her her name, she wrote it out, Whitney Serac. As you can imagine, the parents and the families, the dangers of mistaken identity. Mistaken identity is very dangerous. Uh, Not just because you can get bills uh, that you weren't expecting, and not just because there can even be funerals that are for the wrong people. But when we talk about Jesus Christ, we're not just talking about life and death, we're talking about eternity. Here's a key statement for today's message. Your response to Jesus' identity determines your eternal destiny. Your response to Jesus' identity determines your eternal destiny. We're doing this series, this I Am series, talking about the seven great I Am statements in the Gospel of John that Jesus makes about Himself, where He's declaring Himself divinity. Now there are people, even in the Bible, to think that Jesus is demonic. And so you've got total opposite ends of the spectrum of people's responses to who Jesus is, how you respond to, not just your thoughts about it, not just statements about it, but the life you live in light of it, Jesus' identity determines your eternal destiny and real practically impacts our lives today. we talked about just in the series so far that Jesus said, I am the bread of life. If he's not the bread of life, where are you going for satisfaction? He said last week we looked at John chapter 8 and verse 12, I am the light of the world. If he's not the light of the world, you're lost in sin and in darkness. And today we're going to look at the third statement that he makes I am the door. If you got your Bible, John chapter 10 is where we're going to be today. But let me just remind you of a mistake a lot of people make with the Bible. Sometimes people read the Bible and they say, it's boring, or it doesn't make sense, and I don't understand it. It's because a lot of times we read the Bible unlike any other book we would ever read. We open it up to the middle, we read one line, and we go, I don't understand. <laughs> well, you would never do that with Harry Potter, okay? you never do that with like any book, Shakespeare, novel. It doesn't matter what it is. You'd never do that. And so that's not the right way to read the Bible, just so you know. Uh, It's a big story, Uh, 66 books, uh, several different authors, centuries that it was written, thousands of years. But it's one story. And so you always got to read the story in context. The context for John chapter 10 is not that we just jump in here, we read verse 1 and we're starting a story. It's actually what we looked at last week, John chapter 8 and verse 12, where Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He said that at the Feast of Tabernacles, it would have been a big gathering. Tabernacles is just a Bible word for tents. They had a bunch of tents. People were staying in tents. They were gathered together, making big sacrifices, living in tents, kind of roughing it, acknowledging that everything they've received has come from God. And they're coming from out of town. There's not electricity at this time. They'd build on these big uh, pillars, 50, 75 feet tall. These big torches to light the evening, and Jesus the next morning after that celebration comes and says, I am the light of the world. Then you read John chapter 8. The whole thing is arguments between the religious leaders and Jesus about who he is, where he's come from. It ends, and it's pretty incredible. Like, if you like action movies, the Bible's pretty incredible. They want to kill Jesus, they pick up stones to stone him, and then they can't find him. Hmm. Jesus had some crazy ninja skills. You might not have known that from your children's Bibles. Or was it like the Star Wars, you do not see me, I do not see you? Like, I don't know how, but they're, he's teaching publicly, they're trying to kill him, and then all of a sudden they can't see him. Then John chapter 9 happens, and remember in week 1 I told you, signs are never the destination, signs point to a destination. Miracles aren't the message, miracles point you to a message. In John's gospel, he calls all the miracles signs, The sign that he does to teach that he's the light of the world is John chapter 9. There's a man who was born blind. So his whole world has been darkness. Jesus opens his eyes and he can see. Here's the irony of the story. Once he can physically see, he starts to realize everyone around me is spiritually blind. John chapter 9 ends with the religious leaders asking Jesus this question, are we blind too? John chapter 10, the original Bible didn't have chapters, okay? So sometimes we stop and we're like, this is a new beginning. No, John chapter 10 is just a continuation of that question. Are we blind? To which Jesus responds, John chapter 10. We'll look at the first 10 verses of it today. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. Remember who he's talking to here? They're false teachers. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep, to him the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he was brought out when he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Now remember the context. He's answering the question Are we blind? What's just happened is they've kicked out one of the sheep they're spiritually responsible for because he's experienced healing from Jesus. They've put a teaching in the church. If you confess Jesus as the Christ, that's the Messiah, the Savior, the door, then you're kicked out of the synagogue. He's calling them thieves and robbers. They don't get it. So listen to what he says next. This figure of speech Jesus used with them in verse 6, they didn't understand what he was saying to them. So, To try and make it more clear, Jesus again said to them, "'Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly.'" so Jesus here calls himself, verse 7 and verse 9, the door. What do doors do? Like think in your life of all the experiences you have with doors. You came through doors in order to come into this room. How many of you have doors on your house, I assume? If you've gone through the airport, they call them gates, but there's doors. Some of your Bible translations say he is the gate. Same idea. And so what are doors, whether you're reading it in a story, whether you're experiencing it in your life, they're access points to something else. You come to a house, the door is an access point to maybe rest, maybe a meal, whatever's going to happen inside there. If you're at at the gateways of an airport, you could go to Kansas, you can go to Hawaii. You pick. And whichever door you go through gives you access to something, a different adventure. If you've been to a house of doors, if you've ever gone to the, the fair and they've got all those doors you can go through, it's a surprise or scary or go down a pathway, like the door gives you access. That's what a door is. It's an access point. Jesus here, when he says, I am the door, is saying I am access ultimately to God. But in this passage, if you read verse 9, he gives you three different things that he says there. To, to be saved, to go in and out, and to find pasture. And he's unpacking it with all the words that are around it. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I've come that you may have life. He's the door to eternal life. He's the door to your salvation. That's our first point. Jesus is the door to salvation. And he gives this image that he starts off with that's very weird to us. Because we live in a suburban context, we're used to cities where most of us are not farmers and not used to an agrarian situation. Most of us have never even seen a shepherd. And so next week we talk about Jesus being the good shepherd. Most of us, our experience with shepherd is if you've read a kid's Bible, you saw a picture of a guy with sandals and a really clean white robe and a big cheesy smile, and he's got a crooked stick. So you're like, boom, shepherd! (laughs) People who heard this, Jesus might be teaching outside the, the shepherd gate, at the temple where people are buying and selling sheep. And shepherds, it's just a normal part of life that shepherds are all around. They're not always clean like we see in our kids' Bibles. Uh, but the imagery that people would have would be a leader. And so if you read the Bible, you'll see that even God himself is called a shepherd. The Lord is our, my shepherd, I shall not want, Psalm 23. Uh, Moses, David, different famous people that are leaders, kings, military leaders, are referred to as shepherds throughout the Bible. And so when they hear shepherd, they're hearing leader. And the imagery that he's giving of a sheep pen uh, would be one that we're not familiar with that almost all of his listeners would have been familiar with. It would have been like, uh, if I were to say to you, it's like if you go to Crabtree, and it's like, everybody, even if you're not in Crabtree recently, you, you know what we're talking about. And so he gives this idea of this sheep pen, and we have a picture of one here. They don't all look exactly the same, but they all have the same concept, which would be a structure that would be put together by stones that are stacked up about waist high, Um, Some sheep pens would back up to caves. Some would be a full circle like that. Others might have thickets on top that kind of function like barbed wire. So he says the thief climbs in. There's only one right way in, and it's this entrance here. So studying this this week, I read about one Old Testament scholar that was traveling in the Middle East and was talking to a Palestinian shepherd and said, tell me what you do with the sheep at night. And he took him to a sheep pen like the one that we had on that picture and walked him over and said, I, I lead them in here and then they go to sleep. Everybody's safe. And he says, well, What about the opening? What happens to the opening? He says, I cover the opening. He said, But there's no door, there's no gate. He says, I am the door. The guy wasn't a New Testament scholar, he wasn't even a Christian. He wasn't trying to use Jesus' language. He was just saying, there's no no wolves are coming in unless they come through me. It's like where we get that over my dead body. Like he's there to protect the sheep. And the sheep aren't going out unless they come through me. I'm the access point. Because what the shepherd would do is when darkness would come, they would lay their own body in the entranceway of that sheep pen. And they became the physical door at that point. And so when Jesus says that, that's the imagery that his listeners have. And what Jesus is saying here as he's talking about, look at verse 9, I am the door, welcome through me, you're going to be saved, the door of salvation. In other words, your response to Jesus' identity determines your eternal destiny. So, you go back and you look at, what did He he say exactly here in John John chapter 10 verses 7 through 9? He said again to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. We are the sheep, by the way. It's not super flattering. We'll talk more about that next week. All who came before me are thieves and robbers. He's referring to the Pharisees, the false teachers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I'm the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. And so there's multiple elements to this. The reason why it's important is because it's it's such a big deal how we respond to his identity. And if you look at this passage in context, you'll see in chapter 9, there are multiple ways people respond to Jesus' identity. There's at least three in that passage, apathy, antagonism, and amazement. John chapter 9 drips with apathy. In fact, the disciples of Jesus are the ones that start it. If you read the story as a whole, and a lot of times people will go there, if you have questions about why does bad stuff happen and how come people are sick, you'll see throughout the Bible there are multiple answers to that. But John chapter 9 is an interesting chapter because they're walking along and there's this guy who was born blind. At that time, the thought process was if anyone has a disability, it's because of sin. And so the disciples asked this question, who sinned, this man or his parents? Now, Try and put yourself in the story. What an insensitive question. The guy's blind. He's not deaf. And so they're walking by this guy, and it says in verse 1 that Jesus saw him. I think it's interesting that it says that Jesus saw him, and it doesn't say the disciples saw him. There's a group of people. It doesn't say they saw him. It says he saw him, which is an interesting pastoral note for any of you. That no matter what you're going through that no one else in this room knows about, Jesus sees you. And he saw what was happening in this man's life. And he knew about the bullying. He knew that that was going to happen. Kids are mean. Okay, and this kid's different. And this time, I'm not trying to minimize. Some of you might be blind that are here today. I'm not trying to say that's not a big deal. It was harder then. There's no technology, no hope, no hope of marriage, no hope of a job, no braille. Jesus knew all of that. And he sees this man. The disciples don't see him. So they say, like he's a theological test case, who sinned? This guy? He can hear you, moron Like you want to stop, what are you doing You're going to ask, ask later and so, But then Jesus heals him is the, is the way the story goes, he opens this, never has this Happened before in the Old Testament, never in human History, that somebody who was born Blind is able to see, this guy's able to see But then what you see is everyone around him No one celebrates, not one person In the story, not his parents Think about that. How many times they saved him from walking into fire, from walking into water? Like literally, they've been constant attention. Now he's of age and now he can see and they're not excited? That's weird. His neighbors, his neighbors are debating about whether he's really the guy or not the guy. They're apathetic. And they're even apathetic about Jesus because the Pharisees call the parents in and say, well, who did Jesus do this? Who did this? We don't know. Ask him. It's because they feared Man more than they wanted their lives changed by Jesus Christ. John actually tells us that in the story. And then you got the religious leaders. They're antagonistic. It doesn't matter what Jesus did. They're going to be against him. And some people respond that way today. And so they're upset. Well, he did this on the Sabbath. He can't be of God. It doesn't fit my box. It doesn't go the way that I would do it if I were God, so he can't be God. <laughs> And then calls the in later and calls the, the guy back to tell the story a second time. And the guy's like, I already told you my story. Why do you ask me my story again? Do you want to be his disciples? We're not his disciples. We're disciples of Moses. We've got our religious system. Jesus is going to disrupt that. We don't want anything to do with that. He's a sinner. That's blasphemy, by the way. But then you see the guy. The guy, not the people who are critiquing his story, the guy who's experiencing the story. What would you rather do? Critique someone's story or have a real encounter with God? The guy goes through a progress if you go through John chapter 9. He starts off and he's like, he must be a prophet. He speaks for God, talking about Jesus. Never actually seen him, had an experience with him. And then later he says, well, he's got to be, a God. no one's ever done this. And so, of course, he's of God. And he goes from being a prophet to being sent from God. And then Jesus confronts him, says, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he says, tell me who he is that I believe. And then John chapter 9, verse 38, if you've got your Bible, you can look at it. It says, then he worshipped him. And so those of you who've experienced that Jesus is the door to salvation, what that should do in your heart when I say those words is lead you to worship him. Is it not amazing to you that an infinite God wants intimacy with you? That the almighty God is accessible to you? Even just to talk about that he can see you, that he's, so he's transcendent, but he sees you, that he's holy, but he's patient. That he's righteous, but he's gracious. That should cause us to worship. Amen? Some of y'all, I hope you're listening. This is good stuff. Not because I'm saying it. It's right here in the Bible. It's pretty amazing who Jesus is, but then people are antagonistic. A lot of times people are antagonistic in our day because they don't like things like the exclusivity of Jesus. Now, they're cool with exclusivity on anything else. If they own a baseball card, they love exclusivity. If they're in a marriage, they probably want exclusivity. Like exclusivity for lots of... things. But don't tell me the way to get to heaven... People are upset about that. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus and you talk to your friends that say that, just ask this question sometime. Do you believe that Jesus really died on the cross? It's historically true, like whether you believe it or not. Do you believe that it happened? If God had that happen, what does that say about him if there were other ways? Because the Bible's really clear there's only one way. What Jesus is saying here when he calls himself the door is very similar to what he says in John chapter 14, number 6. I am the way, the truth, the life. Notice it says here, I am the door. Anyone who comes through me, I'm the access point. There's no other access point. I'm the door. It says in the Bible that when Jesus was in the garden of Gethsemane, he says to to, to God, if there's any other way, let this cup pass. There's no other way. Paul says it. Peter says it. Jesus says it himself. There's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Uh, Nikki, our worship leader this morning, quoted Acts chapter 4, verse 12. The church is founded on that. There is no other name by which men shall be saved except in the name of Christ Jesus. He's the only way. People don't like that. But people who know the way, the response is different. There's a way? There's actually a way for a sinful person to be in right relationship with God? There's a way? And it leads us to worship, amazement, antagonism, amazement, and then apathy, are the people who are like, oh, we'll figure it out someday. I don't know. We'll just see what happens. Really? Re- like, this is the most important decision anyone can ever make in their life, and you're just going to see what happens? Don't you at least owe it to yourself to investigate whether what Jesus says about himself might possibly be true? Because if it is, your eternal destiny hangs on his identity. So what do we do? What do we do? How do you get to the place of amazement? Maybe you're not there. Well, you've got to realize your, your current state. I read a story this week about a guy named Stephen Carter. Uh, Stephen Carter, it was interesting, he found himself on the missing children's list. The reason why that's interesting is because he was 35 years old, a software engineer. Uh, He knew he was adopted. He was adopted when he was four years old. uh, And you can look his story up. And like many people that are adopted, they want to know at least their their biological uh, beginnings and their family and some of those things. And so he had always wondered about that. Knew he was adopted at four years old. And uh, one day, I um, decided to look up on the missing persons report. Uh, was there anybody that's been missing for 34 years from Hawaii? He knew he was born in Hawaii. And a composite picture came up that looked, he said, spitting image of him. And they showed it. I thought it looked a lot like him in the news report that I was watching. And uh, he ended up doing a DNA test, sent it to the police, found out that it really was him that was on this, this picture that was there. Uh, Ended up learning some of his story, and if you get all the details, it gets really intricate. He's actually had ten different names in his lifetime, three different birth certificates, and two birthdays. He said, and I think he's a wise man, I celebrate both birthdays. (laughs) Take advantage of that. But what was it that led him, was the question I had. What was it that led him to even look? Like, I don't just think to myself, you know what, I wonder if I was ever uh, kidnapped, and I'm going to look up the missing persons report. He said he was watching a news story, and there was someone else who had a similar Story. It was a woman who had been uh, abducted from a hospital by someone who was pretending to be a nurse and then raised her as her mother. And then when she had a child, she realized her birth certificate had been forged. And when he saw that story, he then looked at his own story. You know, the Bible is interesting because it says that when we look at it, it should function like a mirror, that we should see ourselves. The problem is for many of us, we always see ourselves as the hero. We're always on Jesus' side. We're David in the David and Goliath story. We are uh, the disciples at best. Uh, maybe we even put ourselves in the place of Jesus sometimes as the hero when we see some of these stories. But what if we're the Pharisees? What if we're the religious people that are so trapped in our system and the way that we think things should go that we would actually miss God? He's calling them false teachers here. They're antagonistic to him. Or what if at, at best maybe we're the apathetic people? See, Jesus is, there is a way. Jesus is the door to your salvation. Not only the door to your salvation, He's the door to your freedom. But many of us don't know that we're, we're in bondage. In John chapter 8, if you read the full context, and we don't have time in one sermon to go through all of chapter 8, 9, and 10, but if you read the whole context, I encourage you to do so. Jesus says, anyone who sins is a slave to sin. And so what if so many of us are in bondage to sin and we don't even realize we're in bondage to sin? And and where does that come from? And if you read the context, he shows us deception. Deception leads to destruction. What does the enemy want to do to your life? John chapter 10 tells, or John chapter 10 and verse 10 tells us, not only does God have a plan for you, but Satan has a plan for you. He wants to steal, kill, and destroy you. And so how's he going to do that? Well, he's the father of lies. He's been lying since the beginning. It's how he deceived Eve in the garden. And so he's going to deceive us. So how do we get to freedom? Jesus tells us it's the truth that sets us free. He is the truth. This statement that He's the door is very similar to John fourteen six. I am the way, the way to salvation. I am the truth. He's the way to freedom. The way he says it in John chapter 10 here, though, is a little bit more difficult to see. It's not quite a direct of a statement. John chapter 10 and verse 3, look what he says. To him, the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Out of what? Remember the context. Who's he speaking to here? Are we blind too? They've just kicked a guy out of the synagogue. They just kicked him out of their religion. Jesus is going, no, I led that guy out. Because I am the shepherd. I'm bringing him out of the bondage that you're holding him in and your religion and the deception that you're teaching. I'm leaving this guy to freedom. I don't know if you've thought much about going from bondage to freedom. About about three years ago, uh, my wife and I were in San Francisco and we had the opportunity to go and see one of the most famous prisons in the United States, uh, Alcatraz. I don't know if you're familiar with that or not, but it's in an, on an island in the bay there in the San Francisco Bay, uh, about a mile and a half off of shore. At the time when it was open, it's no longer open, called The Rock because it's on like cliffs basically there. It was considered an unescapable prison. And uh, being a mile and a half out, I, they, they told us, I didn't sample the waters, but they told us the waters are freezing cold and shark infested. Might understand why I didn't sample the waters. And they took us on a boat out to this prison. We got there, they gave us the history, and they said there were 14 attempts to escape from this prison. This prison held uh, famous gangsters from back in that time, Al Capone, uh, Machine Gun Kelly, uh, different Whitey Bulger, like different people that if you're familiar with that gangster history, you might know. Um, And as I was listening to this, uh, 14 people tried to escape. Nobody was successful, they said. They said (laughs) there were three guys that tried to escape. They never found their bodies. The official police report said that they were washed away into the ocean because they said there's no way they could have survived the water. And I was thinking, how do they even get out? Because I'm touring through this thing, got one of these earpieces in, they show you the five by nine cell. Uh, they've got this one bed that's got this guy in it with a paper mache head. And I thought, this is ridiculous. Like it's, it was what, three years ago at the time, it was 2018. And so I'm like, you can't come up with a better, like you want me to experience this? You got this paper mache head there. But the reason why is because that's what the guys used when they escaped. And so about the time that we visited there in 2018, a news report had come out that one of the guys who had escaped, it's Frank Morris, if you want to look up the story, and the Elgin brothers. One of the Elgin brothers wrote a letter 50 years later saying that they had escaped Saying he had cancer, he wanted medical treatment, and he'd serve a year in prison and go on the news and do whatever they wanted him to do if they'd give him medical treatment, and then told a story about how the other two guys had died. They were in their 80s and 90s and uh, shared this. And so I got interested. I'm like, did these guys really escape, or didn't they escape? And I read the story. And the way that they escaped was so incredible to me, because they got out of the prison, whether they made it through the water or not, they got out of the prison. You know what they had to do? They stole spoons from the cafeteria, they made a shank out of the spoon. But instead of using that in a fight, they actually during music hour, because there was a music hour every night, they would chip away at the wall. Have you seen Shawshank Redemption? It's like that. They'd chip away at the wall to make an opening big enough for them to climb through so they could get on these pipes and then climb up these pipes because they discovered there was an air vent, one air vent that gave them access to the roof. And I, in all my reading, I didn't see anybody say there was only one air vent so they weren't going to go through it there was a way and so what they did is that one night they took a bunch of supplies they had stolen over a period of time they made paper mache masks put real human hair on the head stuck them in their bed climbed through a hole in their wall up three stories disassembled an air vent by taking the, the rivets off of it opened that up climbed out on the roof they could be shot they could be killed like other people who had tried to escape would do then put their raft together from 50 rain jackets they had stolen, they'd pump it up down by the water with an accordion from Music Hour, climb down a pipe 45 feet over a barbed wire fence, slide down cliffs, get to this water, assemble their oars from the supplies they had stolen, and then go across apparently this mile and a half water. And then I thought to myself, as I was reading all this, how bad was it in the prison that they would risk their lives and do all these things? And I remember they would talk about it was almost like torture being in the prison and being able to hear the freedom of the people that were a mile and a half away. But one of the key strategies of the guards was to keep the men distracted so they wouldn't think about escaping. So they'd play games like bridge and use their buttons on their shirts to play different games that they would play. And the games don't matter. The point is they were distracted. And I thought, huh, that's like us. So many of us don't realize we're in bondage. Because we're distracted, whether it's games, or hobbies, or our jobs, or the kids, or the pressures, or the bills, or the... And we don't even see what's happening. How much are we like the people in John chapter 9 that we can physically see, but we don't see? And then we're then in bondage. To what? To deception. What are the deceptions? Well, Jesus talks about here the way out of the deception is to hear his voice. What are all the voices in our lives? Because what you listen to leads you. I don't know what your podcasts are. I don't know anything against certain music. I don't, I don't know what news broadcasts you watch, but all those voices are speaking to us. And here's the question you gotta ask yourself. Are they getting me to Jesus or away from Jesus? Are the songs teach, where's satisfaction found in the bread of life or is it a boyfriend? Is it a girlfriend? Is, is the actual answer somebody being in office or is it the king of kings? Where are the voices getting me to? Because there's a lot, there is a ton of false teaching inside the church, just so you know, not just in the media, not just all the bad stuff that's out there in the world. If we just huddle up, no, like when, when Paul's leaving the church in Ephesus, he says to the elders, wolves are going to raise up from among you. He's talking to the elders of the church. And you think about all the false teaching in the church today, like you have to have some discernment for these things. I hope that you'll, there's a list of maybe a thousand that I could give you, but just think of some, some of the things, prosperity, gospel, this is one that gets talked about sometimes, like only in America will we come up with a version of the gospel, where in order to be rich and healthy, you follow a guy who was homeless and died a criminal's death. Like, really? Like, that's really a thing? It is really a thing. Do you know why? Because it exposes our, all the prosperity gospel does is exposes our idols, or makes us bigger idolaters, because what we do is we use Jesus to get what we really want, which is money and health. It's not pointing us to Jesus. It's using Jesus. think about the things that are happening in the world today in this coronavirus environment and the election environment and all the all the things like so much there's almost not a day that goes by that i don't get an email that's governmental like some kind of political email so don't think if you email me this week i'm talking to you but the political agenda that's coming through the church some of us act like because our voice our shepherds are sean hannity and don lemon they're not jesus they're not our pastors that those are our voices or msnbc like whatever channel you watch And so you think, like, your hope ultimately becomes the government, and we think, like, there's a terrible godless bill that's coming through right now to try and say you can't talk about sexual distinction between men and women. Like, listen, a few years ago, it was whether or not homosexuality was a legitimate marriage and all all those things. Listen, the Bible says what the Bible says, no matter what the government decides, just so you know. Jesus is not in danger by what bills get passed in our government. Now, that being said, you should be a good citizen. Write your senators. Pray for your leaders. Like the Bible talks about this stuff. Be a good citizen in our community if God leads you into the Senate, the House, whatever. We'll pray for you. We love you. Use that as a platform for Jesus. But our hope doesn't change based on what they vote. And I want you to know as a church, it's not going to change what we preach. Well, you're going to lose your tax exempt status. Okay, that's not promised in the Bible. Just so you know, and if you're giving to the church because you get a deduction, that's not a very good reason. It's a good benefit, but if it weeds people out, and there's people that are in the church that aren't really part of the church anyway, like people stop attending because we start talking about the church. Tr- We're not going to change the message. Jesus is the message. And then there's social justice movements that are moving through. Listen, If you know church history, this has already happened. Most mainline denominations became social justice oriented on to feed people and help you. And then most most hospitals are started by Christians. Like all oh, that's that's all good. The distraction is that we stop talking about eternity and we miss the gospel in our focus on condemning racism. Racism is a sin. Okay, like this, uh, that should just be known within the church. Racism is a sin. We want people to be fed. We've done food drives during the coronavirus. But if you feed people and they still go to hell, who cares if they went to hell hungry or full? See, the the miracles pointed to the message. The ministries we have should point to the message of Jesus Christ. And so when we start getting distracted by these other things, and those things become primary, whether it's politics, whether it's social justice, whether it's some version of the American dream we baptize in Bible verses, like we're missing the gospel. And so we have to have discernment. How do you know? How do you know this? Well, verse 3 talks about leading out. Look at what verse 4 says in John chapter 10. When he's brought out all his own, he goes before them, that's the kind of shepherd he is, and, he, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice." And so the way you discern truth is you've got to discern the voice of Jesus. And so what you do then is you take things that are being said today and line them up with historical Jesus. These are factual things. Whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, you can't deny the fact that Jesus walked the earth, that he said these things, that he died on the cross, and then he raised from the dead, actually, with the evidence that's there. It doesn't mean you put your faith in it, but you can't deny historically that these things have happened. And so... Does the historical Jesus line up with what the church is saying? Does it line up with what your shepherds are saying? With what your teachers are saying? And I'm going to tell you, most of the podcasts and most of the news broadcasts, are not they have no goal and no desire to get you to Jesus. And so you've got to be discerning as you listen to these things. And how do you do that? We're going to talk more next week about how to hear the voice of God when God speaks to us when we talk about him being our good shepherd. But, but let me give you the primary thing right now. In okay, some of you aren't here next week, You miss it's God's word. Okay? And if the Bible is what we say the Bible is, and here's what we say the Bible is based on what the Bible says, that it's living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, that it is profitable for life and godliness, it's everything that we need, that it is authoritative in our lives. And so if we disagree with it, we're wrong. The Bible's right. If those things are true, you should do everything you can to get into this word. You should be trying to devour this word. And then when you hear things that are different from this word, then you would, you would automatically recognize that. And you can filter that out. And some things need to just be totally rejected. Some things are like, well, they don't know the truth. There's some redeeming truth in what they're saying. And the, there's some things that are like, you might not even know the truth, but that is totally God's truth. You receive those things. So I'm not saying everybody you listen to needs to be a Christian. I'm saying, but as a Christian, you need to know what Jesus says. And so many of us, we don't read the Bible, and we say, that like, the excuses we give are so funny. Like, if you put them in contact, I'm busy. Okay, hold on. The God of the universe wants to speak to you. I've got staff meeting. <laughs> really? <laughs> like think about that stuff. Like think about what we do and think about, I've got to get the kids here. I, I was tired. Or, so let me just let me, like, put it in this perspective just to think about this. Imagine that we didn't have a Bible, but somehow you knew that God wanted to speak to you, but in order for him to speak to you, you had to learn a different language. Wouldn't you do it? Like the God of the universe wants to tell you about your eternal destiny. The God of the universe wants to tell you what he wants you to do with your life. The God of the universe, who made you and has a purpose for you, is going to tell you that purpose. But in order to do that, you've got to learn let's not make it an easy language Mandarin. <laughs> to me, that just sounds like some, some Mandarin speakers here. All right. How about that? I thought if I said Spanish, at least the words sound similar L and A ah at the end. Like it's like you have to learn Hebrew, you've got to learn something that's like hard. Are you going to go, I guess I'll never know what God wanted to say? (laughs) No, you're going to figure out how to learn that. But we have the Bible right here, and God wants to speak to us. And so many times we're like, well, I'm busy. Oh, man, this is the way. This is the way to hear. And this is the way to freedom. We don't have time to read all of John chapter 8, but let me read you a couple verses. John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you're abiding in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. He's calling you by his voice to freedom, to salvation, and to life. Verse 10, Jesus is the door to life. John chapter 10, verse 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it an abundantly real life, the kind of life you are meant to experience, fulfilling life. And the only way that happens is through Jesus. What he's saying here is essentially the same thing that we talked about in John chapter 6 and verse 35 when Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He's saying, I am satisfaction. It's the conversation he had with the woman at the well in John chapter 4 when she's coming to get a drink and he says, I am living water. If you drink of me, you'll never thirst again. If you eat of me, you will never be hungry again. This is the life that I've come to give you and it's me. It's so ironic that prosperity teachers use this verse that the context is false teacher, teaching to then say only in America would this work you want abundant life and we hear abundant stuff I'd get more stuff if I come to Jesus I'll get more I'll have more things I'll have a bigger 401k I'll have more motorcycles like whatever your stuff is more baseball cards like whatever your things are and Jesus go, going no you'll have me more of me And you look at the contrast that Jesus gives throughout this passage as we come to the end of this here and you think about what he's saying. He's saying you can have salvation or damnation. You can have freedom or bondage. You can have truth or lies. You can have death or life. Who's picking? Who's gonna, like, Christian or not Christian? Like, just logic. Who's picking death over life? Who's picking deception over truth? Who's picking bondage over freedom? No one. So why do we? It's because in order to access the door requires trust. We have to trust him, and what he says is hard. You want to live, you must die. You want to gain, you must lose. You want to be great, you must become the servant of all. And we can believe those statements, but to actually trust them. So walk like I'm gonna deny myself. I'm gonna I'm gonna be willing to give up everything for the sake of following Jesus. I'm willing to lay my life down and serve others? Like, to actually do that, it shows trust. The people who do that experience abundant life. I was reading this week about a woman, Helen Rosevere. She's a missionary. And uh, she grew up in a church home but didn't know Jesus. And even when she got to college, started going to Bible studies and said it was a head knowledge more than it was a heart knowledge. But one time when she was there, was asked to share her story of coming to trust Jesus. And it was in that time uh, that she had trusted Jesus. And afterwards, a guy wrote in her Bible, uh, Philippians 3.10. I don't know if you know Philippians 3.10 or not, but it's uh, the Apostle Paul's heart's cry, I want to know Christ, the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship, I mean shared experience, of his suffering. And the guy was the speaker at the conference she was at, said, you've entered into the first part of the verse, I hope you'll know the power of his resurrection, and maybe one day even the fellowship of his suffering. She went up in the mountains and had it out with God after that and surrendered her life. I dare you to pray what she says that she prayed uh, in her journal. Here's an entry. It says, uh, okay, God, today I mean it. Go ahead and make me more like Jesus, who here will say that today. Whatever the cost. Okay, hold up. But please, and this is so self-aware, knowing myself fairly well, when I feel I can't stand anymore and cry out, stop, will you ignore my stop? And remember that today I said, go ahead, After that, she went to Cambridge Medical School, became a doctor at 28 years old, and she went to uh, evangelism training, took her about six months, and she went to Holland and learned French, too, an impressive person, and then um, she went to the Congo to start medical clinics, train nurses how to share their faith through the clinics and run the clinics, had some incredible stories of God showing up and provision, Uh, one famous story, some of you, if you've been in church for a while, may have heard before, uh, where they had a mother who had died in childbirth And a baby was born, a little premature baby, and the nurses were already overworked, and so they were trying to not have them be up 24 hours, was the only way they could keep the baby warm, and the only chance the baby had to survive. And uh, they were out of water bottles. And so she was sharing with the orphanage that they had started there, uh, just some of the prayer requests for the kids in the hospital. She said, will you pray for these kids? And, And one of the little kids in the hospital, named Ruth, prayed, God, will you send a water bottle? And we need it today. It won't do us any good tomorrow. And uh, not only will you send a water bottle, but will you send a dolly? So that that baby knows that even though the mom died, that Jesus loves this baby. And uh, Helen, the missionary, said when the kid prayed that prayer, I didn't even say amen because I didn't think it was possible. Amen means true. And uh, so she didn't say it. She said later that day, she got a package delivered uh, from England. She had never received one before as a missionary. And she opened up the package. There was a water bottle in it. She kind of laughed to herself. She said, Ruth, the kid, burst past her and said, Well, where's the dolly? and started digging in the box and pulled out a dolly and humbled her faith and realizing that God is the God of provision. And the story that I was reading this week about her life, uh, she experienced some terrible suffering while she was a missionary, too. And many of you who know that story maybe don't know some of the other things. And. um, Prior to COVID, I uh, oftentimes would preach like where everybody's 18 and older. I know that's not true uh, here, and I know there's people watching at home. I be really little kids. And so I'll just say, uh, as a woman, she experienced uh, the most violating type of abuse that you can experience as a woman. And most of you will know what I'm talking about. And uh, she was angry with God that he didn't show up and stop that. Uh, then she wrote this. Uh, there was a civil war in the Congo when that happened. She wrote, the brutal, heartbreaking experience of abuse... God met me with outstretched arms of love. It was an unbelievable experience. He was so utterly there, so totally understanding. His comfort was so complete, and suddenly I knew, I really knew that his love was unutterably sufficient. He did love me. He did understand She also wrote this, God understood not only my desperate misery, but also my awakened desires and mixed up horror of emotional trauma. I knew that Philippians 4.19 was true. My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. It was true on all levels, not just on a hyper-spiritual shelf where I had tried to relegate it. He was actually offering me the inestimable privilege of sharing in some little way in the fellowship of his sufferings and to know Him. Do you want to know Him? You see, what you do with His identity determines your eternal destiny, your freedom, your salvation, and life, real life. Let's pray. Father, we come before you today thankful that there's a way. There's a way to you. There's a way to freedom from bondage of sin and death and the wasting of our lives here on this earth. There's a there's a, there's a life that you offer us, but it's found in you. And there's so many other voices and so many lies and so many deceptions. We couldn't possibly even talk about them. But you know, will you expose them as we pray to you right now to some people that are believing them and following them, that are living by lies, that are thinking maybe sin's going to deliver satisfaction, they're thinking maybe uh, some other accomplishment, people pleasing, whatever it is, Father? Will you speak into that? There's people that believe things, they, they think things that you think about them that aren't true maybe you don't love them. There's shame that they hide under. There's abuse that they've experienced. They don't know that you can meet them in that. And Father, will you meet them in this moment? And Father, there's some people might need to know you as Savior today. I pray that right now would be the moment of salvation, that they would place their faith in you. They would come to you, not so they can get some toy, but so they can have you in relationship with you and have real life and experience forgiveness and freedom and truth. I just say to you, um, you continue to pray to the Lord as you feel led to pray, even as I say amen in just a moment. And if you want to pray with someone, we'll have some prayer counselors that will be off to the side in this room. They'll have little badges on that say, I, I can pray with you. And they, just, they might not have all the answers to the questions you have, but they will pray with you. They'll care about you. And, uh, and I pray for you right now. I pray, God, that you would speak into hearts, that you would change lives. I pray as we, we sing to you even more that our hearts would rejoice in who you are. And that we know you, and that we, like the guy in, in John 9:38, will be amazed that you want relationship with us. It's in Jesus name, I pray. Amen.